Welcome to Everything Belongs, a podcast for those living, creating, leading, and thriving while in the deep end of life. I'm your host, Madison Morgan, leadership coach, creative consultant, and speaker. I coach soulful visionaries and go-getting mavericks who desire to create art of their lives and take their work both deeper and higher. In this show, I'll be bringing you an overflow of conversations with my favorite thought leaders, teachers, healers, and creatives who inspire me to live more fully in my own power, worth, and wholeness, along with offering some episodes where I share my own practical insights, behind-the-scenes peeks into my process, and tools I use on my own journey. There will not be much we shy away from here because at this table, everything belongs. Therefore, you can expect me to ask the uncomfortable, juicy questions. You can expect that you'll hear people you disagree with on the podcast and maybe even ideas you've never previously considered. I trust you with your own discernment as we take this deep dive. You can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and be challenged by the guests as they share their diverse experiences and views of the world. It's my hope through learning to see that all of it belongs that you will develop a more sovereign way of holding yourself so you can playfully go after the life, relationships, and career you are made for, to let all parts of yourself have a seat at the table, to lead and create from your deepest truth, and become your own source of validation, all because you finally know you're worthy of it. All that's required to get started, that you show up curious and willing. Let's dive in. Hey everybody, before we jump into today's episode with our podcast guest, Sahar Martinez, I wanted to share with you about the upcoming workshop and ceremony happening this Sunday if you're listening in in real time. On January 23rd in the afternoon, I'm hosting the Rise Higher and Root Deeper workshop, which is now a ceremony. This is our fourth annual Rise Higher and Root Deeper workshop, and I've recreated it to be much more grounded and practical if you've been in the past. It's a free three-hour ceremonial journey that will guide you to root deeper into your power and rise higher as the leader of your own life. This workshop is going to be on Zoom, and in it, I'm combining coaching, energy practices, journaling prompts, time to really write things out and process, and simple invitations to embodiment, movement, and ritual to create a holistic, practical, and truly grounded way to reconnect to your sovereignty. My hope and aim for this time together in ceremony is that you leave with your own personal sovereignty roadmap for how to remember and reconnect to your sacred leadership time and time again. Like I said, it's Sunday, January 23rd at 6 p.m. Eastern, which is 3 p.m. Pacific time. And you can head to my website at madisonmorrigan.com backslash ceremony to sign up. All you need is to register with your email and you're in. And everyone who comes will get a replay available until February 8th. So even if you can't make it live or can't stay the whole time, I recommend sign up, get the replay, really enjoy this. I have been having so much fun creating it and revising this workshop for you, and I'm really, really excited to gather. So without further ado, let's dive into the conversation and introduce our guest, Dr. Sahar Martinez. 
So as I mentioned, I am in conversation today with Sahar Martinez, PhD. Sahar is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a professor of diversity, and a podcast host. And for the last decade, Sahar has been supporting clients through transitional phases of life from a trauma-informed and culturally aware lens. Sahar's clinical focus includes marital, mental health, working with diverse populations, and attachment-focused trauma-informed therapy. Sahar is a deeply passionate person and is really passionate about guiding women in the reclamation of self in addition to the endless roles that they take on in society as partners and mothers and sisters and friends and so on. In this episode specifically, Sahara and I dive into what it means to heal lineage, both from a spiritual and therapeutic approach. Sahara shares a little bit about her work with me, which I was really fortunate that she opened up with on the podcast. And we talk about discernment of what is yours versus what's your lineage. Some of the things that we are facing in our lives actually come from our ancestors. And whether that's spiritual, intergenerational, uh, genetic, we are experiencing the things that our ancestors went through, through our bodies, through our mindsets, and even through our handed down cultural beliefs. And so if you are interested in not only healing your own lineage, but understanding from a doctor's standpoint, from someone who's really done the research and has been living this liberation themselves, please look no further than Sahar. She is such a grounded, holistic person, and it's been such an honor to have this conversation and have her on the show. And so we will touch on trauma in this conversation. We'll touch on immigration and how trauma through immigration manifests in our lives for those of us who have immigrated recently and for those who's whenever we're not occupying the lands where our ancestors came from and we'll end the conversation talking about how to create home in ourselves and I, I could not think of a better person to speak on this topic than Sahar so without further ado let's dive into today's episode Sahar, I'm so excited to have you here. And as you said, as you got to the call, you had a day of sessions because you are a therapist and you were doing brain spotting sessions. And I'm just curious if you could give us a picture of like as a therapist, which includes a lot more, I should have said Dr. (laughs) Sahar, um, what that entails, like how you would explain what you do to people in session all day. What I do to people is make them cry. No. (laughs) Um, What I do is hold space. I hold space in like a therapeutic setting, um, but I hold space human to human and I meet my clients where they are. And sometimes that is in in their joy and in their celebration. And sometimes it is in the deepest part, like parts and pockets of their experiences. So yeah, that's like the very basic (laughs) answer to what I do. I would love if you shared with people, you know, all of the qualifications that you have, because in my knowing you, you got your doctorate and I think that's Mm -hmm. a pretty big deal. Yeah. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. My name is Sahar Martinez. Uh, I guess Dr. Sahar Martinez. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I am a doctor of psychology. I am a brain spotting practitioner. Um, I'm a professor of diversity. I am a mom and a partner and a daughter and a sister, a friend, a companion. Yeah, all those things. So many beautiful things. And what really excites me about, like, you just listed a bunch of identities that you hold. Mm -hmm. And I know 
in, I guess it's been almost two years that I've known you getting close to two years. I know that you've done so much work personally and professionally healing around healing lineage. And I think Mm -hmm. that that topic is really up for people right now, given that people who are settlers on this land in the U S are realizing a lot of things that were either kept from us intentionally or due to privilege were not in light of sight. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are wanting to do lineage work and healing work. And sometimes that looks like therapy. And sometimes it's like making an altar. And there's like, so to me, it feels like an overwhelming topic. Like there's so many ways that that could go. And I'm wondering if you could give us uh, some context before we dive into what that was like for you Mm -hmm. of what your ancestral lineage is like and how you approach the conversation. Yeah. Um, So my family on both sides from my mom and my dad's sides immigrated to the U.S. from Iran. So I'm the first generation to be born in the States. Um, And we come from a part of the world where you are largely identified by the family that you come from. So we're a collective culture. And essentially what that means is that you as a person, like as one person, you represent the community. So it's not just your family. You represent you know, essentially all people from your, your community. And that is a really beautiful thing to hold. And simultaneously with that comes a lot of uh, inherited experiences, good and bad. And we hold those in our bodies. You know, I come from a line of really strong women and that has given me a tremendous amount of strength in my life. And with that, their hardships are things that I've also inherited. And I think that was like a large part of my own healing was the the release and the identification of what is mine from my own lived experience versus what I am holding based off of someone else's lived experience. So Sahar, what I think I'm hearing you say is that um, although there's so much beauty in being that connected to your lineage and to all of the strong women in your family, that there is also a sense of carrying and holding in your body, the collective, uh, the communal and the personal traumas of your people, um, your people being those from Iran and also like your immediate family. Right. Yeah. And I think that could be said of any, any culture, any identity, right? It's not just people from Iran. It's not just people of color. You know, we all hold the stories of our families within us, um, unless those stories have had like that full circle of healing, right? And then we carry on the resilience. Okay. Two things that you just named that I think are really important. The shorter one is the resilience, which makes me feel excited, but just to clarify that the resilience comes as a result of the healing, not as a result of the trauma, which feels really important to say right now, because there's a lot of takes on resilience that don't include what you just said. The second thing that mm-hmm. I think is really important is that mm-hmm. it's not all people of color only who have this or people who are from communal centric um, environments or cultures. And I think as a white person, what I what I observe in this is that it impacts white people also and it impacts Western people who have forgotten their lineage, but we just don't know. Like it's not as, it's not as like obvious. It's This is interesting, like, I'm going to take full responsibility for my healing, not realizing that there's also a land and a people and entire somatic energies that we're responding to. 
Absolutely. I'm curious uh, because I know you have so done so much research in this, how you feel like it specifically impacts people of color in the West. Yeah. So I think like in my research, in my professional and in my personal research, like what I have found is that there is a, an absence of a space to honor the stories of people of color um, outside of their own communities. And so like when we talk about conversations like discrimination or racism or like racial trauma or any of those things, right? Those conversations are happening within the communities that they're happening, that, that are experiencing those things. They're not really happening outside of that. And there is a part of healing that happens in the witnessing of someone else's experience. And I think that that is largely like what we see is that because that witnessing isn't happening on a broader scale, there is this hiding of the experience, like this internalizing of the experience. Because the assumption and the messaging is, is that not only is there not understanding from someone who hasn't had my experience, who doesn't share my background, there is also the unwillingness to hold that space for me. And so I keep it, I keep it to myself. I keep it within my community. I keep it hidden. And while I keep it hidden, I also, uh, I hide my healing and I hide the opportunity that I have for healing because if my healing, if my healing can happen on a larger and wider and more impactful scale, when I am witnessed by someone and acknowledged and validated then I want to do that. And if I, if I have a knowing that I cannot do that or if that space isn't available to me, then can my healing come full circle in the way that I want? Okay, I want, I want to recap because I'm not, I want to make sure I'm hearing you fully. It's what you're saying is what's particularly challenging if you're a person of color in, in a society like the US where mm-hmm. that is a group that's traditionally pushed into itself, essentially, a non-dominant group in society. I've, I've heard recently that marginalized is not the correct or preferred term, and I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Do you, If you have a way to say this. I usually say like diverse populations. Okay, it's diverse kind populations. Kind of like wordy and sterile sounding, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because even just saying non-white is like still centering whiteness, which is like a thing that I'd rather not do, but it's like, okay, I'm like learning, right? What I'm hearing is that if you are from a diverse population, that there's a sense of, yes, they're just talking about the traumas and even the ancestral traumas within the group and also the, the traumas of being under white supremacy. And because it's not being heard by people of other populations, the, the healing can't fully be planted and bloom and grow. Right. Because part of the healing in this is like a structural change that has to happen within society. Right. And so if my healing is related to my race, my ethnicity, my religion, the way that I present outwardly, right. That is generational. And if I'm having these conversations on some level within my own community and they're being heard and maybe acknowledged, that's great. Right. I'm being acknowledged in that way. But if it's not being heard outside of that space, and then that systemic change isn't happening in order to, to create that communal healing, then, then does true healing happen, right? Yes. Okay. So 
I'm getting so excited and I'm having to really slow myself down because whenever I intended to talk to you, I really wanted to talk about the intersection of the spiritual and the therapeutic approach to healing our lineage, but you're also bringing in an anti-racist approach and a systemic approach, which I'm like, of course, because you can't, you can't really have a spiritual and therapeutic without acknowledging that these systems need to change in order for the healing to, to actually bloom fully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So given that you, I'm also just really thankful that you brought that in because I, I'm not sure it can be truly spiritual without that. And I think so many spiritual conversations miss bringing in anti-racism in context, which I get it. And also, is it complete without context? Yeah. I want to know just your personal experience navigating healing your own lineage because you're a first generation. Mm-hmm. Would that be right? First generation immigrant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've been healing things that are ancestral while in a society that has a, do- a dominant narrative that is not those people from Iran. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these complexities. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through what it's been like to become a mother, to heal your lineage, to be a strong woman, to be a doctor, to be a spiritual person, mm-hmm. all while within this context. Super easy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no small question super easy. I think for me, like my own healing started in birthing sons because immediately like that shifted the lineage in my family. So my family generationally is a family of women. My mom has sisters. They all have daughters. My grandmother had two sisters. Like, and so there's this generational lineage of women. And then like I birthed two sons and it was like, what, what is happening? But part of that, I had to like shift my whole perspective because in my, in my mind, I had always envisioned mothering daughters and I had envisioned what I would do differently in a mothering a daughter so that my daughters would have a different experience than maybe I did or the other women in my family did, my sister and my cousins and whatever. Um, and then I had boys and I was like, okay, this is different. This is a different you know, role that I have to take. And also, why was it so important to me to envision only one version of motherhood in which I was mothering daughters? And part of that was like, oh, right, like that healing that you have been searching for was not in you becoming a mother. It was in you looking back to see what it is that you needed that you didn't get. And I think that's really where that started for me. It was like I I transitioned into motherhood six and a half years ago. And then for a second time, for you know, two years after that, and then I had to really sit with, okay, well, who am I like in this new role? Where's my identity in addition to being a mother? And then where is all of that in context to where I come from? And like the where I come from is a very abstract thing because I come from Hackensack, New Jersey, right? But I also come from Iran. And I come from a spiritual realm um, that's like very connected into my family. Yeah. So it's like a a big mix of different things, but I I would say it started there. Like for me, it started the identity, the identification of the need for healing started there. I've been speaking to so many mothers who say the exact same thing and I'm not a mother. So I'm curious what it was for you. I know you can't speak on the behalf of all mothers, but I know this is a common experience what was it about your transition into motherhood that cracked you open in this way? I, so I transitioned into motherhood at a point 
point where I was really ready to take on that role. Like it was an intentional choice that I, that my partner and I made that we were ready to be parents. Right. And so I think that there was a preparedness. There was a, a, not a real preparedness, but an assumed preparedness there. Like, okay, we're ready to be parents. Um, And then once my, my children were born, it both completely validates like everything that you wanted it to be. And also completely throws you for a loop that like, it's so many more things than that. So I was someone who was not connected to my pregnancies. Like I thought I was going to be in this like earth mother barefoot in the dirt, you know, making preserves and eating my placenta. And I did, I mean, I ate my placenta that happened, but I was definitely not like earth mother in the sense of like, I'm connected to this being that I'm growing inside of me. Like I was very much just like, I'm pregnant and I'm really excited to not be pregnant. And there was no connection for me there. And part of me wonders now if part of that disconnection was because of ancestral things that have happened in my, not in my personal past, but in the past experiences of the generations that came before me that created a distance, like almost in a protective nature. Um, And the other part of me is like, maybe that wasn't for me. Maybe that type of connection in pregnancy wasn't for me because the connection when they were born was so intense and so real and so visceral and so not of this world. Like it was just like, this is, this is a creature that I grew inside of me that doesn't belong to me because they have their own belonging I'm responsible for, for a short time. And that responsibility is so massive because it's not only the responsibility to to them, like to, to my children, but it is a responsibility to, to help foster a space where they grow into good people, like for the greater good. And that feels like I get goosebumps when I say that, because that feels like a huge responsibility, but also like a huge opportunity. It, the word eldership like comes up and I don't know if that's like something I'm implanting on your experience. What I'm hearing is like this realization that, you know, you are investing in people who will invest in other people. Mm-hmm. And it kind of shifts that trajectory from just like your life, what you're doing, your body to you are a steward of another person's life. And that will actually impact far beyond you. I'm curious at what point you realized, was it like long after they were born or like, was it immediate that you were like, I need to do some ancestral work. I want to do lineage work. I don't know that I had identified it like with language until you and I met. And I guess maybe there's like context here in the sense that I was familiar with your work. And then like we had a call and I was like, I have to work with this person. And we started doing, having like a coaching relationship. And it was in that relationship where I was like, this is the work that I need to do. So I I think there was this part of me after I gave birth to my sons where I knew that there was work there to be done. And I knew that there was this, like, I keep making like a circle with my hands. There was like this part of me that was unhealed that I had gone to therapy and that, and I had done healing, but I had felt like more superficial healing in that sense. And I needed something to connect into this like very deep part of me that was mine, but also not mine that I had to heal in order to be able to show up like as a parent and as a mother for my kids in a way that was really important to me. Um, And a lot of that surfaced in our work together in the, in the container that you held for me. 
which is always so fun because, you know, I don't explicitly do ancestral work and what comes up is what's perfect. I believe what comes up is, and also I even want to give a nod and ask you about all of the healing work you had done prior because you were finishing up your doctorate at the time Mm -hmm. that we were doing this and you had been mothering for years at this Mm -hmm. point. And I know that you had done a lot of healing work and were in good relations with your family. And so I'm wondering, you know, as a therapist, what your, your perspective is on ancestral work. And, you know, I guess what I'm asking is like, I'm not out here, like I'm an ancestral healer. It wasn't, (laughs) I don't know that it was anything special that I did. I think it was, it was right timing, right container safety, what you like, all these things that had already been bubbling up in you. And that includes years of therapy Mm -hmm. beforehand. For sure. And so can you tell me a little bit about what you think it was that was so supportive starting even years before, like how did therapy impact the way that you started healing your lineage? I have always self-identified as an anxious person, like from early, early childhood. And I think now looking back on it, a lot of that anxiety was not necessarily my own anxiety, but anxiety that I had inherited like through family stuff. Um, my work as a therapist is attachment-based. And so all I do professionally is do this work with my clients. Like, let's look at your past. Like, let's look at all of your past, not just your parents. And let's see how that's impacting how you move through the world today. And so in a sense, it's like, it's, it's a clinical way of looking at ancestral work, right? And in my own work, I worked with great, like, amazing, incredible therapists in my own healing. And I think that there was this fear inside of me of going deeper because I didn't want to, I was afraid of saying things or um, having people think poorly of my family because they, I am so close with them and I care so deeply for them. And the experiences that I had were not necessarily a reflection of my needs not being met, but it was a reflection of generational needs not being met. And in a clinical space, that can sometimes be really hard to understand. Like, it's not a lot of therapists who are like, I'm woo-woo, like, and I'm a clinician. You know, there are, like, we're out there. I'm one of them, you know. Um, But for the most part, it's like, okay, but, like, let's talk about what's happening right now. And I'm like, no, I want to talk about what happened 100 years ago. Like, that's what I want to talk about. Because what happened 100 years ago is present in my life today. Um, But that's, like, the embodied part of this work, right, is that when we talk about healing, in any sense, we have to talk about how we are, what part of healing is not happening for us, why it's not happening, and is it something that feels so out of our reach that we have to look back that far and say, okay, where does this land? Where did this start? Where is the root and foundation of this? And then how do I uproot it? Given, I mean, given one that you've done this work just personally, which I think gives someone enough to speak a little bit to it, but also that you have, you have the spiritual lens, which is also ancestral in your family. You have the clinical experience and you have the research experience. And also you have the lived and researched experience of what that's like as a person of color. And all of those things inform the last couple hundred years. Like all of those things are included, which I think makes you like uniquely skilled at what you do because you have so many frames of reference from personal to um, being just really interested in a number of different topics. And I'm wondering if someone is like, let's just say someone is struggling with like feeling 
attachment things, you know, because that's really popular right now, like attachment styles. And they're like, oh, I identified that I'm avoidant or I'm disorganized or whatever it is. How would they know the difference between if it's just something that happened in their lifetime or something that was older or something that was systemic? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's pretty easy, like with the right support to identify what has happened in our lifetime, right? So I have, you know, anxious attachment because when I was a kid, like my parents were around, whatever it was, you know, or I was a latchkey kid or my parents divorced or, you know, any number of reasons, right? So that makes sense. When we start feeling or in ways that don't make sense to us, that's when it's time to expand and say, okay, so like for me personally, my parents are still married, had a very like typical childhood with two very loving parents who still like, like each other. They still hold hands in public, you know? Um, and the anxiety that I, I can't remember a time when I haven't experienced anxiety. Part of the reason like why my would amplify was because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand like, okay, there's no real reason that I can land on why this is happening. I don't, you know, I didn't have, I had secure attachment figures growing up, like that extended beyond my parents, like through family and caregivers and teachers and even my siblings. But I still felt anxiety, which as I grew older, then was also depression. Then what, you know what I mean? It came this like domino effect of things. So part of it is like, maybe it's biological. Maybe I'm predisposed to having this experience. And, and maybe it's also stuff that isn't mine that I'm holding on to. So can I look back and see maybe where this is and how it has been passed down generation to generation to generation and has landed on me? And can I be the one to create healing so that I don't pass it down in the same way to my kids? Totally. Um, I'm recalling a session. I had a session with Mark Wolin. I'm not sure if you are familiar with him, but he wrote, it didn't start with you. Mm-hmm. And it really got me interested in internal family systems so much deeper than I already was. And whenever I started doing this map of my family and this full report of my family, I realized that my dad's mother and my mother's father were both orphaned as children. Mm-hmm. And that also that twins are on both sides. There's like very strange, like my dad's mother is a twin and my mother's mother is a twin. And I was just like, this is really bizarre that like both of my parents have a parent who's a twin and both of my parents have a parent who was orphaned around the same age. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that like my own, like my, uh, what is it called? The gene keys, like my, Mm -hmm my like life purpose, like the main one at the top. I don't know if it's a life purpose, but it's the 59th key. And it's all about uh, the shadow is dishonesty, but what will happen is like a pulling back from a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. and the gift is intimacy. And like the shadow is like penetrating, trying to get intimacy and, or moving away and being like, see, I don't belong. See, I don't belong. And I'm like, this is fascinating. Like it was written in my cells to have this specific disposition that was also just genetically passed to me, which was also in the attachments, which was also in the fields of my parents. And it's almost like I can't unsee it, how obvious this shit is. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, maybe that maybe I'm not broken. Maybe I'm carrying the shame or the isolation or the abandonment 
of people from years before me. And then of course, in the the field of my parents, perhaps they are repeating those traumas because they were handed down to them. So like behavioral, which we know in epigenetics, it's not just behavioral. It's also literally their cells change. Right. And so it's, to me, it's so fun to start exploring the ways that what once was just woo-woo and spiritual is now in therapeutic work, like attachment styles, but also is showing up in epigenetics. Yeah. The patterns are so clear once you see them. They're so clear. And that's the thing. It's like, as much as we can, you know, we can say phrases like the the inheritance of trauma and people are like, "Ah, okay, whatever. That's not a real thing. But it's like, actually it is. Like you biologically change your brain changes when you experience trauma and we cannot define trauma as one thing because what might be traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you and so what I might we might have like my children are growing up in the same house with the same parents with the same everything right and one of them might experience something that could create a trauma like trauma for them right and the other one could experience the same thing and be completely fine so the one that experiences the event as being traumatic, they have biological change that happens in their body, right? Trauma causes stress. Stress causes change. Change in your hormones, change in your brain cells, change in your, like, in, on a molecular level in your body. That's what gets passed down. And we can't deny that. That's science. Like, that is proven. It's research. Like, we're, we're, this research is happening right now. It's been happening for a long time. And so... Yeah, we inherit it. We inherit behaviors. We inherit people's past experiences. We also inherit like the parts of their cells that get passed down through families. I recently learned that the United States has the most serial killers in the world. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, I've read Resmaa Minikin's My Grandmother's Hands, and I've been thinking a lot about what some might call the spell of whiteness, which is really just the trauma that white people have to continue perpetuating perpetuating in order to stay so disconnected from feeling and so isolated in privilege. And so in so like what you were saying about community of being able to talk to community, that is something that uh, I observe a lot of white folks aren't experiencing. And so this chronic isolation and hyper individualism, it's creating such a disconnect from feeling And then it's really funny. I hear white folks, friends of mine even say like, oh, well, like I don't necessarily have any intergenerational trauma. And it makes me wonder how we're not looking at having distorted privilege as a trauma because it is not real. It is not connected to our humanity and we have to stay disassociated in order for it to work, which like is inherently generational trauma. So I'm, I might have just taken a hard left turn here, but I'm curious your thoughts. I like I go back to this time and time again. Only you as an individual can determine what your trauma is. For some people, trauma is moving. For some people, it is a parent separation. It is the loss of a pet. They're everyday things, right? They're everyday things that might not impact another person, but they are so deeply impactful to that individual's experience that it creates change within them. It changes the way they look at the world. And so trauma can be in like grad school, you're missing like little T, big T trauma, you know, but like trauma is trauma. Some people have significant trauma and they experience post-traumatic growth from it. 
great. That's great. And some people experience what I might look at, look at and be like, oh yeah, that's just another Tuesday at our house. And it's significant for them and they cannot move past it until they decide to do the work around it. And so I think that we have to look at how people are reacting to and engaging with the things in their lives. And we have to look at how that looks long-term, not just in the moment, right? Sometimes we experience something and years later, we look back and realize that that was a really traumatic moment, but I didn't acknowledge it. And I also didn't have the space to acknowledge it because no one else checked in to see if I was okay. I think privilege is one of those things where we look at it and we're like, oh, if you have privilege, you're totally fine, right? You have privilege. Like you can do whatever you want. You can move through the world however you want. I do think there is another side to it where there is like an assumption that people with privilege they don't experience hard things and they can't have trauma that they hold on to or that they inherit. And I don't think that that's essentially true. I think both can coexist. I think they certainly do. And I think that they cause those with privilege to continue to overlook harm. Like I think if we are connected to our bodies and our humanity and to to realizing that we are a connected human family, which would take not being in a trauma loop all the time, then it would be very for me, I'm thinking if I was in my most connected place where I felt so connected to you and to all people and to all beings, it would be very challenging unless I was disassociating or fleeing to be able to tolerate that. It would be so painful. And so I I just, I guess I pers- have a personal belief that doing this work in doing therapeutic work and doing lineage work, like even just saying like, Whenever I started asking my own mother about her experience as a child and asking my grandmother, I'm getting so much information of like, oh, that like to them, that's very normal. That was a normal thing. But nowadays we would say, oh, that was really traumatic or that was really hard. Like these things that were so normalized or your family immigrating. I actually am very curious about that because I've had a number of family or of clients have be first generation immigrants and had never considered that that was traumatizing, that that was challenging, um, or immigrated themselves as a child and didn't even speak the language of the new place that they moved to. Mm -hmm. And can you explain either from personal experience, if you want to go there, but also from a therapeutic lens, what that, what that could be like for someone? My mom and her siblings and the generations before her, when they immigrated, um, like my mom came to the States, not speaking English. She was a kid. She was like 12 or 13 when she came over. And that was, I I remember hearing stories as a kid of how hard it was for her and how she was made fun of and what a child, like how, how the, how leaving her home and coming to a new place was both displacing and exciting and confusing, right? The other part of this is that my parents immigrated from a country that no longer exists in the same context in which they left it. So my parents left Iran before the revolution happened there. And so there is this ambiguous loss that happens when you leave a place and you have that in your mind's eye of what home looks like for you. And then that place is destroyed and it no longer exists in that way. And so for my parents and for the generations that came before them, and I think from immigrants from Iran in general, um, or from any country who has experienced this kind of revolution, uh, you have the loss that comes with immigration, but you also have the loss of your home because you don't have anywhere to go back to. There's nowhere to go back to. 
the place that you go back to is not a familiar place. So you have loss on top of loss on top of grief. And that is really unsettling. Like, how do you create a secure and safe place to settle even within yourself, knowing that, knowing that you're in a foreign country, in a foreign land, and you have not created connection here yet, but also knowing that the place that is supposed to be safe and home and somewhere you can return to no longer exists. I'm I'm so curious to bring in two things that I know have been resources for you and that you also teach um, because you're, you're posing the question like, what do you do then? And I think whether it's through immigration personally or through a lot of folks who listen to this are queer people who have been isolated from the church and want to connect with God, but also have like a disorganized relationship with God, even to use that language of, I want to be close to this part of me that's important. And I'm terrified because this has always been punishment and shame. Mm -hmm. And so where is my home, my spiritual home, my land home, my actual parents, my actual family, a lot of people are experiencing like a soul level estrangement. Mm -hmm. And so whether it is what you're saying of like land, family, um, roots, or I don't know what church to go to because my people don't see me. I'm wondering how you create a secure attachment with self and weaving in the spiritual component, because we know we can go to therapy, but a therapist can't cultivate the spiritual work for us. So I'm curious, because you're a therapist, how you would recommend calling in spiritual support Mm -hmm. to secure a healthy attachment with self and find home in self? I think the creating secure attachment with self is the most important work that we can do in, in any kind of healing. What I learned, like in my studies and attachment work was always attachment and relationship to someone else. What is your attachment to your partner? What is your attachment to your children? to your family, et cetera. And in like the more recent years, the more I think about this, the more I'm like, all of that matters on a secondary level, because if I can't securely attach to myself, if I can't have like the foundational knowing that I am okay, because I am home within myself, then I can't provide security for anybody else. And I surely cannot allow anyone else to securely show up for me, right? I can't find that safety in a consistent deep, authentic level, because there's always going to be this part of me that doubts myself, right? And so secure attachment to self is trusting yourself, knowing that home lives within you. So it's not about land, and it's not about where you're from, or where you're living, or where where even like your physical body exists. It's in that connection to self of I know that I will provide safety and security for myself. And I know that if I can't provide it for myself, I trust that I will find a space to hold that for me. And I think that's probably the most important part of it. So whether that's um, finding spiritual connection through church or finding community through people and groups and organizations, it's about trust. Like foundationally, it's about trust. And I think we often forget how important it is to trust ourselves um, without abandon and unapologetically, right? Like I get to exist in this space and not feel bad or sorry or apologetic about it because I deserve to take up the space. And I know that I deserve to take up the space. That is, I think, the hardest thing for a lot of people to come to terms with 
is I am worthy and what I need is what I need and that's okay. And I can provide for myself in the ways that I can. And I can trust that I will find the spaces to provide for me uh, when I can't provide for myself or when I need someone else to show up for me or something else to show up for me. I also think like religion can exist within you. I don't think you need to go to a place to access God or a higher power or whatever that is. I think that all of that can live within you too. I love the way that you put that so much because the more sovereignty work I do, I think right now that word so got hijacked by QAnon, such a bummer. Um, Cause I, <laughs> I had created rising sovereign and then like QAnon app and it was like, wait a sec, that's not what I meant. Um, because I, what I meant is secure attachment to self, but that's not a cute name for a program. And so <laughs> I didn't name it that. Um, but really what I'm hearing you say is like trust home inside ourselves. And like the more, you know, what in my partnerships and in my relationships with people, the more I think of like, whenever my insecure or what is it, avoidant attachments, like actually technically I have a disorganized attachment for my childhood, but it's healing. So it's moving more into anxious, which is actually a very good sign that that's mm-hmm. like, it's being more stable. I'm like, yes, stability. <laughs> um, whenever I'm triggered at least, because what I, what I know whenever I see those patterns in myself arising is that I've outsourced someone else to make sure that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And if they would just be different then I could be okay. And if people that believe different things than me would be different then I would be okay. And so I start noticing how much outsourcing and how similar that is to why won't mother see me in a certain way? Why won't mother pick me up when I cry? And from my understanding of attachment, a healthy relationship with family that would lead to a secure attachment just leads to inherent self-trust. And Mm -hmm. so it's like attachment theory seems to be so focused on other, but really like what happens to those attachments is it a secure, like I belong in this world. I'm worthy in this world. All the things you were saying, I'm home in myself. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what like spiritually you recommend calling upon or supporting yourself with if someone's like, I want that. I've been doing a lot of people who listen to this have been doing the work, whatever, however they define the work. And I'm wondering like, what are some things that you recommend doing that don't require other people being different or participating or being in an intimate relationship to start working on, to cultivate that sense of home and self? I'm So I'm a really big believer in the power of ritual. And I think that there, we often externalize that experience of like ritual around other things, right? Ritual around holidays, ritual around whatever, other, other things, other people. But there is a really important piece of having ritual around our own needs. And I think that part of that is in creating space every day to connect into that. And maybe that is in a meditation practice. Maybe that is just, for me, it's sitting in sunlight. Like, and I'm fortunate to live somewhere where there's sunlight every day, right? On most days, but it is getting a quiet spot at some point in the day, doesn't matter when it is, to just let the sun shine on my skin. And that is my way of checking in. Like, how do I feel? What do I need? You know, can I provide that for myself? Can someone else provide it for me? Where am I landing right now? And I think in the work that we do, like as uh, space holders for others as healers, as therapists, as, you know, whatever, we often direct those questions outwards to others. Like I, I say that all the time, how are you landing? Where am I meeting you today? You know, 
And it's rare that I turn it inwards to myself. So I've had to make ritual and practice around it of creating that space for myself to say, like, where are you landing today? You know, what is it that you need? And sometimes I'm like, oh, gosh, I have a really long work day today. Like, I have these conversations with myself. I really, you know, wish that I didn't. And I'm also, I can identify the gratitude in it. And I'm also super grateful that I get to do this. Like, I'm super grateful that I got to work in leggings and like a denim shirt today from home and make myself lunch and be home when my kids got home from school. So yeah, am I tired? Sure. But I also can connect back into like myself and my body and my experience and the present, right? I'm tired, like all that stuff. Sure. I'm tired. I'm a mom. I work like I have a shit ton of stuff going on in my life. And the other side of it is that when I really connect into my experience, that largely lives in a space of gratitude that I get to do what I do and live how I live and fulfill the roles that I have, right? When it starts to depart from that, when I can't access that gratitude, when I can't access, like, I call them like the sparkly parts of my life, then I have to look at like, what is lacking? How am I not meeting my own needs? But that becomes like in the same way that we wake up and we brush our teeth in the morning and, you know, we get going that needs to be part of it is like, how are you connecting to self? And maybe it's just asking yourself the question, like, how are you doing today? And it's that simple. It doesn't have to be this big production. It doesn't have to be a million years in therapy or doing some, you know, rolling around on the floor or whatever it is. It's really just meeting yourself exactly where you are. I feel so resonant. I recently had an Akashic Records reading and she actually brought up that I have really, I have ancestors who have been waiting for me to accept the call of what I'm here to do, which is so mm-hmm. akin to a lot of the conversations you and I had, which is really, you know, fun to have that conversation this week. And she, she said what they wanted me to know was to put my son in the face or my face in the sun and let the sun shine on my face mm-hmm. as a way to hold the grief for all of the, the me's, the younger me's, but also all of the women in my lineage who for whatever reason, didn't make the choice, didn't have access to the choice. And so it's so, and she told me, um, tell is her name. She told me, you know, it's, it's these simple acts that can heal your lineage. And I'm wondering if you believe that also, if like, you know, there's a lot of things we can do to heal, but do you think that an act of just meeting your own needs is enough to start to heal your lineage? 1000%. There is such power in acknowledging our own existence, being unapologetic about taking up that space. I think as women in general, as female-born humans, we are socialized and conditioned to fit in tiny, pretty packaged boxes um, that feel good to other people. And to that, I say, fuck that. Like, I don't (laughs) want to live in the tiny packaged box. And that is like, that is one part of my lineage, actually, that I honor. My grandmother, who passed away this year, she was that person. Like, she did not exist in a tiny, pretty packaged box. She existed in her own way as the freest spirit. And if anything, was <laughs> was disappointed by her daughters and grandkids for not, for not embodying life in the way that she did. Um, and so in part of healing my own lineage, I've also, like, connected deeper into that. To say, like, sometimes on my drive home from work, like on the days that I work from my office, I just want to scream in the car. And so I scream and I let, like, and I look nuts doing it. Like, I'm driving in suburbia, like in my minivan, 
screaming in my car at 6.30 at night, I feel so fucking good. It feels so good. And I don't know why it feels good or why I need to do it, but I do it, you know, because that's what I need right then. In the same way that sometimes I just turn the music up and want to sing. And sometimes I want to turn the music off and just feel the wind with the windows down. But I don't question it anymore. And I think that's the big part of it is that when I connect to something and I'm like, this is going to feel good for me right now, I do that. I do that thing and I don't question it. And that feels like a very deep connection to self. And that by not questioning myself feels really healing. And I think it provides the space for the generations that come after me to also live in a space of not questioning themselves, like live in a space of certainty of self. What I love about that is it, to me, I imagine, you know, there are more than just women who listen to this podcast, but it's majority women. And I just think about no matter where our, where on the globe our ancestors came from, if we are here now, we've been socialized under the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the patriarchy has a specific idea of what women get to be, even if our original cultures didn't adhere to that. Like either way, that was the socializing of many of our mothers, grandmothers, great grandmothers, and so on. What, what's it been around 2000 years plus of the patriarchy? So it's like, okay, um, I actually don't know. I think it's been longer than that. I just think no longer questioning ourselves is such a severing of the continuation of that and the, the reverberations of like, I want to scream. I'm going to scream. I want to wear this. I'm going to wear this. I want to eat this. I'm going to wear that, like eat this. Mm-hmm. And just having that decisiveness, it feels, and which to me, like to repeat what you said about secure attachment to self is like, I'm not questioning. There's not a fragmentation. There's no splitting happening. I, I am who I say I am. I want what I say I want. I do what I want to do. That congruence is so powerful. There's this thing that my mom has said to me for as long as I can remember. And it like, this isn't, I mean, she says it in Farsi and I am going to butcher the translation of it, but I'll say it. Um, she has always said to me and my sister, the way that you treat yourself is how you give permission for others to treat you. And I've, that's stuck with me for a long time. At first I was like, what does that even mean? Like the way that I treat myself gives permission to others, like to treat me a certain way. And I realize now that what that means is that when I am in a place of certainty, of not questioning myself, of full embodiment, of healing, what I project out to others is this is, this is my boundary, right? My boundary is that I am who I am. I will not apologize for who I am. I will not apologize for the way that I exist in this world. And I will allow you into my space in a way that feels good for me and feels good for you. Anything outside of that, I'm not, I'm not buying into it. And I can connect to that now, like after doing my own healing. But before it was a very confusing thing for me. Like, how do those, those things don't feel connected at all to me, right? Because I was so disconnected from self. And as I have moved to a place of deeper connection to myself, I realized that when I am in a place where 
I am not honoring who I am and my needs and how I want to move through this world and how I need to move through this world, I also then cannot allow people to show up for me in a way that honors me either. And so it's not about like being in a shitty relationship or having shitty friends or whatever it is. It's about, am I showing up not fully for myself? And that is why I am allowing these people to come into my life in this way. I have noticed the more I bring more of myself to relationships, I get to see how people respond to that. And then there are choices. Yeah. And I don't always like the choices, (laughs) but I get to make them. And also sometimes they're made for me and I just have to accept the grief that comes whenever relationships can or can't meet what I have brought forth. And I think that's why so many of us are afraid to do this work, afraid to, to bring forward who we are, what we want, what's actually true for ourselves and what would, like what it would look like for our lineage to be well. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I have one final question because you are someone who is so well accomplished and a lot of people have stuff around their ancestors not wanting them to be seen in that way, not wanting them to shine, not not thinking it's fair or right that they be successful or make money or be educated. And that, I'm curious if you have any, I guess, what your experience has been with that and how you would recommend unhooking while honoring those ancestors. In my family specifically, like the, the wish of my parents I think was to have one or both of their kids like be a doctor or be a lawyer, you know, the things that person parents want. (laughs) Um, And so I think that when I decided to go to graduate, when I started to get my master's, that was very much for me. Like I, I wanted to go to school. I wanted to be a therapist. And for my doctorate was two things. I don't think I trusted myself to uh, do this work fully without having another degree. And I also think I wanted to give my parents the gift of being able to fulfill a dream of theirs, which was to have like a child who had fancy letters after their name. Once I got to the end of it, I realized that, yes, it was that this was something that they could celebrate. But really, for me, it was uh, proving to myself that I could do it and that I could do something that I wanted to do. If I look back a generation before my mom to her mom, like her, (laughs) her greatest dream was like for one of us to be a dancer on a cruise ship or something like, and that's like just her creative free spirit energy. Um, And so I think that there was, I have a a cousin who is an actor and a singer and a theater. And I think she very much was like the golden spotlight for my, for our grandmother, because she was living and is living that life of uh, being in front and in the spotlight. The things that are for us or for you are for you. And when we get to acceptance, like radical acceptance of that, of things that are for me or for me, it doesn't matter what anyone else expects or wants because you accept that the things are for you that are for you. That's hard to get there. It's hard to separate what is it that I want versus what is it that my family wants? What is it that's important to me versus what is it that is important to my family or my lineage? And so we cannot if we live life only honoring our lineage and our family, we're not actually honoring ourselves. That's not to say that like, you can have the same goal, but that has to be identified that it's both your goal and their goal too. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what I think I'm hearing you say too, is like, you can do something in honor of your lineage 
even if it wouldn't have been your first choice. And that's not wrong. And it's not that cut and dry that it's uh, bringing forth, like, I guess the theme of what I would call sovereignty, like how to belong to ourselves and belong together, which are both inherently true. And also hyper-individualism would say, I'm going to do my dream my way. And it doesn't matter what my lineage where they've been or what what has happened, I'm going to do it my way. And then also the enmeshment side would be only lineage, only family, I don't exist. And secure attachment to self would be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are who we are because of the people in our lives, you know, and whether it's people that are present or people that are not present, like we are an amalgamation of um, the people who came before us in a lot of different ways, whether it was people that came before us in our direct like familial lineage, people that came before us because we now live on their land, people who exist with us and maybe came before us within the communities that we're in. And so it's not just like I was born into this family or I was born of these parents and that is my lineage. It's sometimes chosen to be a part of this family and now they're a part of my lineage. Um, I see this thing I have... Uh, I do clinical supervision for therapists who are working towards getting licensed. And I'm like, we're now a part of lineage together. Like this is when you supervise someone, when you get licensed, like our clinical work will all be connected together in the same way that like now when I supervise my supervisees, like I will reference things that I learned in my experience. Lineage is connection and we find connection both in places that we have decided to connect into, but also places that were not of our choosing. And it's important to acknowledge both of those things. Sometimes the healing part of healing lineage is in, I'm healing this because I need to close this door because I need to disconnect from this. I need to acknowledge it. I need to do the healing and I need to now say goodbye to it. And, And sometimes it's, I need to heal this part so that I can hold it in a way that feels good to me because I don't want to let go of it, but it's also causing me pain. I'm so thankful you brought that up. Lair and Alta, who I believe you've met, mm-hmm. um, she's one of my teachers, and she talks about the bloodline and the milk line. I think there's one other line, but I can't remember what it is, but the bloodlines, like your family, like the people whose blood you carry, but the milk line is those who have nourished you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't even know those people, but there's, you know, we've read their books. We've read a lot of their work. And like you're saying, like, I hadn't even considered the ways that some of my healing has been healing my lineage of mentors Mm -hmm. or coaches where I say this pattern ends with me and I'm no longer participating in this anymore, especially for those of us who hold space for other people. I mean, we come from a lineage. Do you have time for some rapid fire? Yeah, always. I, I also just want to say that like, there are like seven other conversations inside of this conversation <laughs> that could be so beautiful. And I just want to say, I know you have a podcast and you're on Instagram and you're on TikTok. And so there are other places for people to go and learn more from you. Are I there any places, <laughs> are there any places specifically that you want to send people to? I think I'm probably most active on Instagram and TikTok. My email is always open though. I'm like, I love engaging with people and talking. And so yeah, slide in. DMs. Perfect. Well, let's start some rapid fire. What is your spiritual background? Mm. So you know this about me already, but I like am very connected to nature and nature is spirituality for me. Not in the sense of like, 
I don't camp. Like I'm not a camping person, <laughs> but <laughs> not that kind I of nature. Like, yeah. Like I'm, <laughs> my husband grew up camping. And that was like a big source of content, not contention, but just like, like, what do you mean you don't camp? I was like, camping's in a cabin. He's like, no. I was like, you do white people camping. I do like not white people camping. Um, but nature, like I, I find uh, connection and healing and resolution in nature and animals. And I, I feel like my spirituality largely lives in that space. How do you know when you know? Oh, it's just that feeling and like the in your gut and your heart and your chest like your whole body um sometimes it is like it's so intense and sometimes it's just like oh I know that like that I know the other night I was coming home from a dinner with friends and in our doorway at our front door which I never go to the front door I always go in through the garage in our home it's going into the front door on this evening there was a tiny black bird just hanging out at like 10 o'clock at night in the doorway and I saw it and I took a picture of it and I sent it to another friend. And I was like, I saw this bird tonight and this is for you. And I just knew that it was for her. It wasn't for me, but I knew that it was for her. Um, and so sometimes I think it's just like, you just know it's like something that you feel. I'm curious to know your authority in human design. Do you know it? Oh, I don't, I know, I know that I know it, but I don't know it off the top of my head. Yeah. Just message me later if you figure it out. Because I'm like, I wonder, like, I wonder there are so many ways people describe how they know what they know. And it's interesting to see how it overlaps with like the things that human design say should be accurate for you. I th- is that like, I think I'm a generator. Is that what that is? Yeah. yeah. So you'd probably be either splenic or emotional, which it's, I'm not splenic. I'm sorry. Like sacral, which means you would know immediately mm-hmm. um, or emotional, which means like you would have to like let your emotional waves pass before you find a clear yes or no. Oh, I'm not that one. I'm yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. Gonna say, I'm that one. And yeah. it's not as fun as the people who are, they just know when they know. I'm like, must be nice. Oh my God. <laughs> I think like there is, I do a lot of processing in every other part of my life, but with the things that I know, like specifically, I think around spirituality, it's not, they're not things that I have to consider for very long. Like, it's just, I know. Yeah a hit of intuition. What identities have you had to let go of to own your fullness today? The identity of a good girl, the identity of, uh, this is going to sound. So the identity of woman in the context of which it was expressed to me in my whole life, which was subservient, uh, quiet, small, someone who should not speak and so I've had to let go of that identity, that being a woman uh, means existing behind a closed door versus existing in a space of your own choosing. I've had to release the identity. I've had to release the identity of being a student in a traditional sense, which has been like something recent in finishing my degree this year and transitioning into being a student of my own, which has felt really good, like a really good transition. Um, it feels really empowering to decide what I want to learn about and how I want to learn about it and who I want to learn from versus being told to do so. And it was the identity in the most recent years that I've had the hardest time letting go of. For many of my friends who've become doctors, I hear a very similar experience of letting go. And that's a, you've been in school your whole life. Yeah. 
That's a long Literally. time. It's <laughs> a long time. Yeah. What a transition. What are you most enjoying learning right now? Speaking of learning. I'm most excited about and enjoying learning about abundance and what that means and what it looks like. Yeah. And how to like fully embody that. That sounds wonderful. Mm -hmm. What does grace mean to you? Grace means radical acceptance. What is your go-to coffee shop order? Black. Iced and black. Yeah. Amazing. And last question is, what do you want? Everything. All of it. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Everything Belongs. With the number of podcasts and content online and a very full life, I know the value of your attention and I'm so grateful for every minute you spend listening to this show and having these conversations reverberate through your home, your car, and in your life. Thank you so much. If you loved this episode, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast app so others might find this podcast. You can find the show notes for every episode on my website and find more out about today's guest by going to madisonmorrigan.com backslash podcast. And if you want to find a place to get started with my coaching work, the best place to do so is to download the Call Your Energy Back practice. It is a free journal guide and short hypnotic meditation to help you get into a daily routine of connecting to yourself so that you can take up all of your rightful space, embody your wholeness, and live with the power that comes when you really belong to yourself. You can go to madisonmorrigan.com backslash energy dash back to download it right now. This meditation uses binaural beats, the brilliance of your subconscious mind, and powerful coaching questions to release the energy and emotions of other people, to generate a field of protection all around you, and will leave you feeling full of your true self, powerful, worthy, and whole. Now, if you're not already, please come and hang with me over on Instagram, DM me, and let me know your favorite part of this episode. And until next time, remember that curiosity can be a portal to a life where everything belongs.